Next Chapter Podcasts. In the 1980s, action movies were king in Hollywood. Audiences couldn't get enough bazookas and brawn, and there were a lot of both to go around. Before market-tested IPs and cinematic universes were a thing, moviegoers were content to line up in droves just to see exploding helicopters and machine gun fire on the silver screen. If there was a decent story tying it all together, great. But it was more important to make sure there were enough explosions to satisfy the audience than a carefully crafted plot. Standing atop this muscle-bound movement were two titans of the genre. Sylvester Stallone, star of Rocky and First Blood. They drew First Blood, not me and Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Austrian-born former Mr. Universe and Mr. Olympia winner turned eponymous killing machine in The Terminator. I'll be back. Both were riding high on the tsunami wave of glistening pecs and gun violence flooding in at the box office. But after Arnie and Sly, there wasn't a clear standout among the many contenders for third place on the action star podium. As the 80s came to a close, many of Tinseltown's leading men like Tom Cruise or Mel Gibson were vying for greater artistic legitimacy through more serious dramatic roles. And so, two scrappy challengers were duking it out for that coveted third spot. Each had an ace in the hole. They were both martial artists, something neither Schwarzenegger nor Stallone could boast about. With the tragic death of Bruce Lee a decade before, no one in Hollywood had emerged who could kick as high or command a filmed fight scene in quite the same way. Could one of these two hopefuls fill that void? Are you men enough to fight with me? You tell your brother I'm going to cut off his head and piss down his throat. Recognize those voices? That was Jean-Claude Van Damme, a.k.a. The Muscles from Brussels, and Steven Seagal, uncontested master of the widow's peak. Both would enjoy success kicking random dudes' asses and their share of box office glory, if not the most glory. They became opposite numbers, vying for that prized third place on the podium, which led to their own private little conflagration. This is the story of Steven Seagal versus John claude Van Damme. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is Beef. Hasta la vista, baby. In 1982, Sylvester Stallone had two of the highest-grossing films among the top 15 that year. Rocky III came in at number three overall, betting $124 million domestically. And First Blood, which treated audiences to their first look at Vietnam veteran John Rambo, raked in $47 million. Arnold had himself a pretty good year, too, with his sword and sandal epic Conan the Barbarian bringing in just under $40 mil. Two years later, Schwarzenegger had himself another pretty good year when The Terminator and Conan the Destroyer combined to bring in over $65 million. While these weren't the highest-grossing films of their day, they showed that a recognizable face and physique, combined with a few well-placed car crashes and general mayhem, was a winning formula to put butts in seats. And James Kendrick, a professor of film and digital media at Baylor University who authored Hollywood Bloodshed, Violence in 1980s American Cinema, and edited a companion to the action film, says this rising genre crystallized an essential part of the American identity at the time. 
it's a term I like to use called the pure action movie that really emerged in the 80s, where now you get these movies where the action is the reason for the movie's existence. So what that means is you have more action. Rather than being just a couple of isolated action sequences in a larger film, you have action scene after action scene. You know, producer Joel Silver, who produced you know the Lethal Weapon films, argued that action movies should have an action sequence at least every 10 minutes, that 10 minutes should not go by without an action scene. So you had that, and then you also had a, a significant political and social shift in the 80s with the rise of Ronald Reagan and uh, you know the, the morning in America and this sort of ethos of resurgent American power and pride after the doldrums of the 70s and you know inflation and Vietnam and all of that. Now it was sort of a time of, of resurgence for the American spirit. And you really see that embodied in the, in the action film where you start having these action heroes who are all about winning and they're all about you know, conquest and success, sometimes just for their own purposes. Our relationship with movie stars always to some degree has an element of projection. You know, we project ourselves onto those stars and I think that the ascendancy of these action movie stars in the 1980s, all of them, they were embodiments of success. They were embodiments of power. They were embodiments of, you know, really domination in a way. And audiences, you know, you go back and you look at films in the 70s, even action films and beloved films in the 70s, they were often a lot more ambiguous. I mean, people sometimes forget that Rocky doesn't win at the end of Rocky. He loses the bout at the end of that film. That's unimaginable in the 80s Rockies movies where the, the whole films are absolutely contingent on his winning at the end. Even if he loses in, at the middle, like in Rocky Three, he has to come back and redeem himself through victory in the end. And so all of these stars, more so than the action movie figures of earlier eras, particularly in the 60s and 70s, we loved watching them because they were so successful and they did it with style and they did it with quippy one-liners and they did it, you know, in, in a high profile, powerful kind of way that was an enjoyable kind of fantasy. Surely in a world hungry for action movies, there was room for one more superstar. But who would that be? There was the gun-clutching, karate-chopping Chuck Norris, who'd already made something of a name for himself. If you come back in here, I'm going to hit you with so many rights, you're going to beg for a left. And Swedish star Dolph Lundgren, who was iconic as the villainous Drago in Rocky IV. I must break you. And a charismatic newcomer in Bruce Willis. yippee motherfucker. Hollywood isn't exactly known as a haven of humility, though. Neither is the martial arts community. So what happens when fate pits two men against each other who know their way around a dojo and have a face that may be worth some showbiz coin? Well, for Seagal and Van Damme, it meant a petty feud that grew uglier as their celebrity status ascended until finally a gauntlet was thrown. Most people familiar with this showbiz brouhaha point to this 1991 appearance on the Arsenio Hall show as the first time the bad blood between these two was aired publicly. Do you know Van Damme? No. <laughs> you, you've heard of him? Because, mm -hmm. like, you guys go back to the martial arts world before you were movie stars, right? I mean, he was like a, a champion somewhere, and, right, I mean, 
You, well, I think that that's a matter of opinion, that he was a champion anywhere. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, I'm not being catty or anything. I wish the guy all the best. But there are an awful lot of people who say that that's not true. Not a lot of minced words there. For his part, Van Damme fired back on the Brazilian TV show Domingo Legal. What about Steven Seagal? <laughs> Can you tell Steven Seagal? Yeah, Steven Seagal. Okay, Hello. okay. <laughs> In that clip, the audience is reacting to Van Damme walking with his knees bent and arms akimbo as he waddles across the stage in an exaggerated pantomime of Seagal's own gait. This was in 2001, a full 20 years after Seagal's comments on Arsenio. And even in 2012, when an interviewer asked Steven if Jean-Claude was tough enough to back him up in a street fight, Seagal had this to say. Thoughts on Jean-Claude Van Damme? Can I laugh in your face? So plenty of time for the beef to cook. But let's back up. How did this all start? From his comments on Arsenio, the original contention seems to be Seagal's claim that Van Damme was never a martial arts champion. But how true is that? Well, by the letter of the law, it's not. Van Damme was awarded a middleweight championship title by the European Professional Karate Association as a teenager. Growing up in the Brussels region of Belgium, Van Damme, whose given name is Jean-Claude Camille Francois von Verenberg, was something of a runt. Concerned about his son's ability to defend himself, Van Damme's father encouraged him to train in karate when he was 11 years old. Van Damme took to the discipline surprisingly well, along with an interest in weightlifting and ballet, and earned his black belt in karate at age 18. In 1976, at the age of 16, he began his kickboxing career. Over six years, Van Damme earned an 18-to-1 knockout record in kickboxing and a 41-to-4 record in semi-contact decisions. So while it's true that his championship status became a footnote exclusive to his teenage years, he did enjoy success at his sport, as his records demonstrate. For a while, Van Damme had his own gym in Brussels, but his real aspiration was to become a movie star. He moved to Hong Kong to try and break into the well-established kung fu film scene, but his time there was short-lived. Instead of heading back to Brussels, Van Damme continued his quest for big screen glory by moving to Los Angeles, where he renamed himself Frank Cujo. Thankfully, that terrible stage name was short-lived too. So what about Seagal? What was his martial arts background that anchored his authenticity and afforded him his action star career? The Lansing, Michigan native began his martial arts training as a young boy. Seagal left Michigan for California as a teenager before relocating to Japan when he was 17 years old. He remained in Asia for 15 years, teaching English, training, practicing Zen meditation, and sometimes helping out with fight choreography for films. While he was abroad, he received his greatest accreditation when he was awarded a 7th Dan Black Belt ranking in Aikido, Seagal's martial arts style of choice. In Aikido, 7th Dan is the highest rank one can achieve. Aikido is a Japanese form of self-defense within martial arts that is all about deflecting an opponent's attacks and using their own inertia against them. Aikido involves throws, grappling, and locks, and rarely involves striking attacks like punches or kicks. It looks more like wrestling than karate. There's a strong tradition of that, you know, definitely going back to Bruce Lee, which is that people went to see his films with the understanding that he was a true martial artist and he was not, for lack of a better word, faking it, or he didn't just do a bunch of training right beforehand to learn a couple of moves that could then be edited together to make it look like 
you know, he could do things. That in the same way that Fred Astaire insisted on long takes in his musicals in the 30s so that audiences knew that he and Ginger Rogers were dancing in that way and, and performing those moves without the benefits of editing. Same thing with Bruce Lee. There was a uh, appeal to realism that when you were watching him do this stuff, you knew that you were watching a true martial artist performing their art on screen. And so when people initially went to go see Chuck Norris films, it wasn't because they thought Chuck Norris was a particularly good actor. It was because, hey, he was the, you know, middleweight karate champion from 1968 to 1974. You know, we want to see him doing what he does. And so that that appeal to their to their off-screen existence, that they're true martial artists, I think had a, had a lot to do with what audiences wanted to see and the draw to their films. Seagal returned to California and opened a dojo in Hollywood which garnered him enough notoriety to draw the attention of studio execs who believed that he had the presence and ability to become a major box office attraction. But for someone so focused on his Hollywood rival's martial arts accolades, apart from his seventh Dan status, Seagal doesn't have much more to go on to demonstrate his arguable supremacy over Van Damme. No fight card to speak of, and a master rank in what some consider a fairly useless martial arts discipline when faced with a real-world attacker. While any documentation of Seagal's real-world ass-kicking bona fides simply does not exist, one thing Seagal has made sure to get on the record over and over again is his distaste for Van Damme. Is that true he got in a fight with you? No. I, I, it'd be like me squashing an ant. I don't remember where, I'm, I'm, I don't know if it was the Inquirer, but I remember reading something about that. If he sees me, he runs. Van Damme hasn't been Seagal's lone target over the years. Far from it but he has been one of, if not the most consistent targets. Why, you ask? Well, that's a question that only Seagal can answer. And since he hasn't really ever spilled the tea on that, there's pretty much zero chance he ever will, which leaves us only one option to try to make sense of this debacle, examine the evidence and draw our own conclusions. It seems like it just boils down to the age old, this town ain't big enough for the both of us routine, or if you prefer, a familiarity that bred contempt. Both Seagal and Van Damme broke into movies at the same time. Seagal with Above the Law. Meet Nico, a covert agent trained to survive in Vietnam. And Van Damme with Bloodsport. For centuries, the Society of the Black Dragon has sanctioned an ancient right of combat. Both in 1988. They share the same gimmick that lent them authenticity, a background in martial arts. And both actors saw their stars rise and fall along the same basic timeline. Seagal reached his box office peak in 1992 with Under Siege, which netted 83 million worldwide. I'm thrilled to death to hear that. But it leaves a lot of open territory. Two years later, Van Damme found his top mark with Time Cop, which scored 101 million across the globe. But by the end of the 90s, both men's careers were rendered irrelevant. No, nobody's got a future. Frankly, the bad blood between these two is fairly one-sided, with Seagal being the one airing his grievances to the press, while Van Damme mostly lays in the cut. Occasionally, Van Damme would make a jab at Seagal's weight, as the Aikido master packed on more than a few pounds once he was past his prime. Van Damme once remarked about Seagal, quote, he's not in good physical shape. Absolutely not. He came on the screen playing a macho guy who fights in a suit. Women love that. But Van Damme mostly left it at that. 
he did finally acknowledge that there was somewhat of a feud between them on The Howard Stern Show in 2012, even offering an origin point for when it went from playful sparring in the media to actual hard feelings, saying, quote, It all started on The Jay Leno Show years ago when Jay asked Steven Seagal, You know Van Damme? And he said, He is not good in martial arts. But he never met me, though. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. There is a rather important chapter in this story from 1997, though. One night at Sylvester Stallone's Miami home, Sly was throwing a party. Some notable stars in attendance included Madonna, Shaquille O'Neal, Don Johnson, Bruce Willis, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and, you guessed it, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal. According to the party's host, Van Damme was completely done with Seagal telling anyone who would listen about how he could kick his ass no question and challenge the Aikido master to a fight in Stallone's backyard. The fight never happened. To hear Jean-Claude tell it, he waited two hours for Steven to emerge from the house. Here's Van Damme in his own words about the incident in 2010. Quote, No fight was made, just a little pushing because it was a beautiful house, had beautiful furniture. I was pissed a little and said to Stephen, come outside. For his part, here's what Seagal said of the almost fight. Quote, He approached me. He was drooling, foaming at the mouth. And he said something to me. I just said back to him, when you're sober, if that day ever comes, come say shit to me. I don't care how small you are or how girly you are. It won't matter. Now, according to Stallone, Seagal wanted no part of the challenge and left the party in favor of a nightclub on Ocean Drive. Stallone claims that Van Damme followed Seagal to his destination, once again calling him out for a fight that went unanswered. Despite their similar origins, Seagal and Van Damme had fairly distinct on-screen personas, making their real-life squabbles all the more ridiculous. If Arnie and Sly could exist simultaneously, who's to say Seagal and Van Damme couldn't too? To be fair to all parties, Schwarzenegger and Stallone had their own rivalry that ran hot in the 80s. Stallone once characterized the intensity of it by saying, quote, even our DNA hated each other. 
And while it's silly to attach any worth to a Hollywood beef, at least Stallone and Schwarzenegger were gunning for the number one spot rather than duking it out for third banana the way that Seagal and Van Damme were. Anytime that you have competition, you know, in the industry, you're always going to have a push on on artists to do something better or bigger the next time. And I think you you can see that with uh, the action genre in the 80s. I mean, you can kind of trace the development as the films got faster and bigger and the action sequences themselves became more elaborate, more stylized. And I think that was, you know, the nature of the competition among the directors, among the writers and among the stars that they were seeing each other's work. They were saying, oh, you know, I saw that action sequence in that film. I think we can do that one bigger. We can do that one better. We can put in a few more cars. We can, you know, add to this. Is it true that you tricked Sylvester Stallone, who is, uh, is he a friend and a rival or just a rival? No, no, in the, in the 80s, he was just a rival. Just a rival. Just, it was just competition. It was all about who is uh, making bigger movies, who has uh, uh, more definition in their muscles, mm-hmm. who has more box office success, who kills more people, uh, <laughs> who kills people more creatively, <laughs> who has bigger knives, who has bigger guns. In the end, I started running around with machine guns that were only used for helicopters, mounting on helicopters or on tanks. It was crazy. It was all out war. It was all out war. And that certainly is the case with, with fight choreography. I mean, you can see the fights in martial arts films in the 80s getting more elaborate, more sophisticated, you know, always trying to sort of top what had been done before. So I think that level of competition definitely drives things forward. Also of significance is the fact that Stallone and Schwarzenegger were able to bury the hatchet and not in each other's heads. The turning point for them came when they both had a chance to get in on the ground floor of something so positively 90s, it's a wonder that it's still halfway relevant today. I'm talking, of course, about Planet Hollywood restaurants. And they wanted me to be their celebrity partner. And Sly's lawyer, who was also my lawyer, and Bruce Willis's lawyer, and Chuck and Jane's lawyer. So there was a tremendous conflict of interest there, but we don't want to get into that. <laughs> it was very funny because he called me to say, look, I know you're doing this big deal now with the Planet Hollywood people. Uh, can we get Sly in there? Because otherwise he would kill me. He would be so jealous that you got the deal and not him. And I said to myself, even though it be at the height of his fighting, that I would go and just be gracious and make this kind of like be the point where we turn around our relationship. So I said, yes, have him come in. As a matter of fact, I think you should have Bruce Willis also join us. And we started traveling around the world. And Sly and I actually ended up becoming really best friends. And, uh, and, you know, it was like one of those competitive things that uh, we now we laugh about. That's right. Stallone and Schwarzenegger might have hated each other's guts, but at least they had the sense to know money comes before a disagreement. Neither Seagal or Van Damme reached the same meteoric heights as their predecessors. Perhaps there was a feeling shared by both men that the other was somehow to blame for this. In his films, Van Damme favored absurd, even comedic concepts, In Sudden Death, he has to save his son, along with everyone else in the Pittsburgh Penguins hockey arena, from a terrorist bomb plot, which involves an elaborate fight scene with one of the terrorists disguised as the Penguins mascot. (laughs) 
Van Damme movies can always be counted on to feature some combination of choreographed fights with Van Damme performing spinning kicks, the splits, and showing off a little booty, sometimes all at once. Seagal, on the other hand, was more buttoned down, literally and figuratively. His character sported suits and dress shirts. When it came time to kick a little criminal ass, he did so in style, with a lot of close hand grappling and throws, a nod to his Aikido roots. His characters were often CIA operative types, cops, Navy SEALs, or people who normally avoid violence, but somehow possessed incredible skill at throwing people through windows if they had to. All right, bitch, assume the position. You're under arrest. Get up against the wall and give me a hand. Fuck you! You'd think the two personas they inhabited were so different that they'd appeal to different enough audiences, and there would be no real risk of horning in on each other's shine. So what happened after the almost fight? The answer is not much. Maybe as their careers cooled off, so did their tempers. Maybe Seagal feared being called out again, which led him to lay off Van Damme in the press. A second refusal to fight him would seem pretty fishy, especially after all his claims that he could not only get Van Damme to submit to his will, presumably through a series of handlocks and grappling techniques, each more skillful than the last, but pretty much anyone else too. Seagal seems to enjoy, or perhaps he's simply unable to resist the urge to self-aggrandize his accomplishments. Did you know he was recruited by the CIA and trained operatives while living in Japan? or that he taught MMA fighter Anderson Silva the front kick that he used to KO Vitor Belfort? Well, according to Seagal, that's all true. Of course, the CIA has never confirmed his proximity to the agency. But then again, why would they, right? And for his part, Anderson Silva made it clear that Seagal had nothing to do with his training. It doesn't stop there, though. Seagal has insisted on his guru-like status in the eyes of many martial artists and others over time. All of these points have been disputed or flatly denied. These are a mere amuse-bouche of the claims that Seagal has made over the years. Here's a partially incriminating, alleged anecdote that we'll serve up for you on the house. Back in 1991, Seagal was shooting a movie called Out for Justice. On the set, he was said to remark that thanks to his years of martial arts training, he had become immune to chokeholds. This prompted stunt coordinator and martial artist Jean LaBelle, an on-set consultant, to test Seagal's claim at his behest. According to legend, LaBelle was successful in getting Seagal to take a nap, one that ended with him losing control of his bowels in front of 30-odd crew members. Now, to be clear, LaBelle has never fully confirmed or denied this rumor. And in fact, he was purposely vague about it in an interview with MMA journalist Ariel Helwani. Unsurprisingly, Seagal later roundly rejected the claim while on Helwani's show. I, you know, I, I never knew this about him. Either he is a pathological liar or he had somebody, you know, making up these stories. There was never, ever any confrontation with him, ever. Never? Uh, in any way, shape, or form. And I swear to God on my children, they're the most sacred thing to me in this life. And so if he said that, he is a pathological scumbag liar. Whether or not that story is true, it's no secret that Seagal likes to run his mouth, something that's only increased with time. It's almost as though the more weight he's gained, the more braggadocious Seagal has become as well. 
Perhaps his floor-length robes are hiding his secrets in a swirling zen vortex only he can control. Van Damme, on the other hand, seems a bit more self-aware vis-a-vis his vantage in the world today. He's even demonstrated an ability to poke fun at himself with his commercial work, including one for Volvo trucks, where he's suspended between two semis as he perches with his arms across his chest in his patented full-split move. What you see is a body crafted to perfection. A pair of legs engineered to defy the laws of physics. And a mindset to master the most epic of splits. Or in the very meta, somewhat well-received, 2008 movie JCVD, in which he plays a fictionalized version of himself. He even manages to get a little gag in about his old pal Steven Seagal in that film, who he keeps losing roles to. In the same way Seagal and Van Damme first appeared on movie screens in 1988, both attempted comebacks within two years of each other. Seagal in 2010 as Mexican drug lord Rogelio Torres in Machete. I know you'll just be waiting for me in hell. So, I think I'll say goodbye. and Van Damme in 2012 as the mercenary villain Jean Valaine in The Expendables 2. This is the symbol of the goat, the pet of Satan. Neither project was successful at getting the aging stars back in the limelight for long. Their faded glory is one of the few things they share in common these days, although age has brought them together in another notable way. Their public support of Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump, and other strong men around the world. So, yeah, not great. Like a lot of disagreements, this one appears fairly ridiculous, especially as we move further away from it in time. It's a shame, really. In an alternate reality, could these two stars have avoided the quarrel and united for a chance at on-screen superstardom? Well, according to a Van Damme interview in 2008, the possibility was there. At the end of a century, ravaged by violence, a society of perfect order will arise. Warner Brothers floated the idea that Seagal and Van Damme go head-to-head in a little project called Demolition Man. Seagal was meant to play the hero and Van Damme the heel. In the end, those roles went to Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes. Oh, what might have been. Given both their reputations for literally not pulling any punches when pummeling their co-stars on set, maybe actually landing blows on one another would have led to the final confrontation and closure this discord deserves. Of course, we'll never know for sure, but it's fun to wonder whether Seagal and Van Damme could have reached the highest echelon of movie stardom if they'd been able to put the past behind them and support one another instead of tearing each other down. Instead, they left a vacuum in Hollywood, one that was filled by an all-American guy with the cool, dry wit of a dyed-in-the-wool action star. Come on to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. The simplest solution is often what comes to pass. Bruce Willis was right up there with the rest of the muscle-bound hopefuls in the late 80s, riding the success of the box office smash Die Hard, which positioned him nicely to cash in during the decade to come. Even if Seagal and Van Damme had put their differences aside, Willis probably would have surpassed them both in the movie business. But it didn't hurt his chances at finding his place on the action star podium to have Seagal and Van Damme backbiting each other. What might have been a dogbite became a cakewalk for Willis, who saw his star ascend even as those belonging to the old guard of action heroes waned and flickered out. 
Action movies, too, have flickered and faded from popularity, at least the exploding helicopter variety. The advent of the Marvel Cinematic Universe has changed the landscape for all big-budget action films, forcing the rest of the studios to take notice and search for the next IP goldmine. This shift in philosophy has affected what kinds of movies get made or don't get made, and likewise, what kind of actors are cast or not cast. Explosions alone are no longer the gold standard for a good action movie. Now, they must contain the trappings of, if not a truly rich plotline. Exhibit A, the Fast and the Furious saga. Gone are the days when all you needed to greenlight a picture was a premise about an ex-Navy SEAL with a receding hairline battling mercenaries on a battleship, or an American Army captain who barely sounds American entering an underground fighting tournament in Hong Kong. The further away we get from the inimitable cinema of the 80s, the more absurd the feud between Seagal and Van Damme appears. Back then, anything was possible. Rightly or wrongly, they seemed to believe only one of them would cash in on a glitzy movie career. And in the end, their time near the top was short-lived and surpassed by other, more bankable stars. Their martial arts training proved not to be an ace in the hole, but rather a flash-in-the-pan gimmick. After all, movies aren't real, so who cares if the actors could beat the crap out of the bad guys in real life? How it looks on film is all that matters. That's what makes it show business. Well, I think the, you know, the films of today, they have drawn substantially on a lot of the, the innovations in the action genre in the 80s and have basically accelerated them and made them even bigger and more epic. So particularly the idea of the very confident, smart, witty action hero, you know, and you can trace this through sort of the, the one-liners and the quips and uh, Schwarzenegger and Stallone films, but then also, you know, kind of the, the comic banter in Eddie Murphy action films in the 80s, like Beverly Hills Cop and Beverly Hills Cop 2. You know, you see that in various ways in Marvel superheroes, for example, but, you know, it's just one of the main differences is that now it's dispersed across a whole group of action heroes rather than there being sort of a central action hero like there was in the 80s. But I think the, the scope, the size, the spectacle, and again, that sort of that, that centrality of the, of the action protagonist that we can project onto is very much what drives the, you know, the action films today. Beef is a production of Next Chapter Podcasts. This episode is written by Ben Austin Docampo, with help from James Levine and Pete Musto, who also edited this episode. Our executive producer is show creator, Jeremiah Tittle. Don't forget to subscribe to, rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. I'm Bridget Todd. Thanks for listening to Beef. And remember to stay petty. Who knows how far it'll take you? Next Chapter Podcasts.